0: the conclusion of Ash's commentary on Job, not the one we read together, but the the unabridged version of that, so to speak, is a reminder for us to think about what the book of Job was all about. Because I thought it was interesting that you can, I mean, I've been teaching Job now for a million weeks. And even after teaching it, if someone had asked me prior to this chapter, "What is the book of Job all about?" What would you say? Even right now, if you, if you what is the book of Job all about? God is God. Christ. So that, I'm glad y'all learned more than I did. Yeah. Yeah. The answer is God. The book of Job is about God it's easy for us to think y'all did better than I did, that it's about suffering, but it's not. It's about a Christian suffering because he's a Christian, a believer suffering because he's a believer. And therefore it's a book about God. And that's really important to keep at the forefront of our minds, because if you come to Job expecting answers on the subject of suffering, you're going to walk away disappointed. It's not what the book is about. It's not what the book claims to offer you. If you come to Job looking for answers about who is God, you will get answers. You, you, you may not... I don't even want to say you may not like the answers you get. You may be surprised by the answers you get. The answers that you get may force you to wrestle with who God is but if you really get the book of Job you will be glad in the end that God is God and that you are not and that that's a hard-fought battle to get there it's Jacob wrestling with God it's um it's persistence in prayer it's 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 Paul praying the thorn would be removed from his flesh until he stopped praying that because hard-fought awareness that God is God. And so Ash calls this the turning of the tables. (laughs) The, the, The way we initially approach suffering is from a we understand it and it is not good. What will you do about it? But now the tables are turned. We can't understand it because God is God and we are not. And so what's left is to bow in humble submission to God. God who made and who entirely controls the Leviathan and Satan and the beast and the monster who seeks to destroy Job. Even that hideous monster is God's monster, God's creature. And so Job is at its core about our bowing down in reality. It's about our bowing down in the darkness to the God who is God. Leaving even our most agonized, unanswered questions at his feet. Job is about, this is quoting Ash, the humility to admit there is so much about this world we do not understand. Job should cause us to be a little introspective at how presumptuous we are, how easy it is for us to tell God to, to act as though we're the ones who made the world and we know what should happen and we know how it should go. That that presumptuousness of we would have this world run better than God would. And so Job is a picture <laughs> as you would expect, of the gospel. Job begins with Job in humility and repentance, making sacrifice, worshiping, humility and repentance on behalf of his children. And Job ends with humility and sacrifice. Job recognizing God is God and I am... <laughs> That's the picture of the gospel. That is repentance and faith. The human character of Job, the person of Job is not unimportant to the story, but he's he's acted upon. He's not the centerpiece. God is. Job is the blameless believer who walks in fellowship with God and yet suffers terrible and undeserved pain. He's the follower of God who goes through deep darkness And must believe that he will be vindicated at the end. For our purposes, this side of the cross, Job is, what Ash has a good phrase, passionately and profoundly about Jesus. Job foreshadows Jesus in remarkable ways. His blamelessness, his perseverance through undeserved suffering. Listen to this. He says, As the blameless believer par excellence, Jesus fulfills Job. As a priestly figure who offers sacrifices for his children at the start and his friends at the end, Job foreshadows Jesus, the great high priest. The monstrous ferocity of the beast Leviathan reaches its vicious depths in the life and death of Jesus. Can't lose sight of Jesus' passion being a darker place than even Job's life, a more solemn and awesome darkness than even Job ever saw. And so the drama, the pain, the perplexity of Job reach their climax at the cross. In the darkness and God forsakenness of those terrible hours of lonely agony, the sufferings of Job are transcended and fulfilled. And as the blameless believer accused and despised by men, but finally vindicated by God in the resurrection, Jesus fulfills the drama and longing of Job for justification. What Job gets is the shadow of what those who follow Christ get, what Job will ultimately get. I would say in the sermon today, it was a really good thing. They didn't know it at the time and it felt like a bad thing, but it was a really good thing that in the end, Israel did not get to keep the land and the rest. Because if they had been satisfied with that land and that rest, they would never long for the new heavens and the new earth and the rest of life in Christ. And can you imagine if Job had been satisfied to have his family and his fortunes restored and that had been enough for him? That's a wonderful blessing, a wonderful restoration, but it couldn't be enough for him. The heart longs for something more, full and complete vindication, restoration, which is a world that is run uh, as God has promised. And that's the shadow in which we fall. When we take up our cross, when we walk in Christ's footsteps, we are walking in some way in the footsteps of Job as well, all who've believed before us. And that experience, the New Testament lays this out clearly, is that our final justification will only come through present suffering. We have to be buried with him to be raised with him. We have to follow him in the way of suffering if we're going to follow him in the way of glory. And so our response to Job in the end has to be, if we want it to do us any good, it has to be a prayerful posture that God would give us the grace to bow down. That's really what it all comes down to. That God would give us the grace to bow down to him. The God who is God. Because one of the hardest places for us to bow down to him is in the darkness. In hurt and confusion and uncertainty. It is hard to acknowledge God as God. And his right and rightness in what he's doing. In prosperity... We may forget God. We may fail to realize our need of God. But oftentimes we won't. Job didn't. But it was in the darkness that Job's sin came out, that God had to, had more work to do in him. Because that acknowledgment that God is God, the grace that's needed to bow down, uh, is most needed in suffering. And that's what it's about. That's why Job has to be about God, Um, because where Job gets it right is that he never loses his faith in God. He is ultimately teachable by God. He receives correction from God. He repents toward God, and he's given the grace to bow down. So that is the book of Job. Questions? (laughs) What do you want to talk about? A lot of concepts have come up over the last—I uh, don't know how long we've been in here. It's almost a year. Really? Wow. I would have said maybe longer. I think it's almost a year. How long have we been in Isaiah? The, uh, it'll Isaiah will be exactly a year. I planned Isaiah fifty-two sermons.
1: Yeah.
0: So let's start with Job. And then we'll move on to any other questions, but we need to talk about this. The timeline of Joe from the beginning to the end, year, years? Yeah, we don't know. Um, we don't know because of how long. We don't know how long he sat in silence. Right. We don't know how long between the friend speeches. We don't know. In my mind, it's months. Could, could be more or less. Hard to believe it's less. Um, the the biggest indicator of that is there's no uh, rapid transportation in those days. So even for the friends to hear this news of Job and then to get to Job is some extended length of time. So I, I think we're in months. Maybe we're in years. One of the concepts we've talked about a lot is sort of the progression of, Steps in our mind to get to the place where we see God as God. So we we've, we've talked about humility. Uh, that is a, a significant theme of the book. We use the word acceptance. Some uh, we've talked about acceptance being. A dangerous word? Uh, uh, (laughs) There's an acceptance that's a kind of resignation? There's also an acceptance that is a type of (laughs) hope-inspiring trust? I want to say acceptance that's hope-inspiring. Right, You can accept the diagnosis of cancer. That, that doesn't give you hope. Make you not right, right. I guess one of the things I've been trying to think about as we come near the end is how do you navigate getting to the good parts out of this without getting mired in the unhelpful parts? We've talked a lot, uh, because of the book most of the adults read, about the tornado God. We can mean that in a good sense or a bad sense, right? We can, that can be a, a helpful descriptive phrase, but it can also be theologically inaccurate. It can be, <laughs> it can be wrong. He's not arbitrary. He is capable of destroying anything you hold dear. That's a profound theological truth. The Leviathan belongs to him. He sends chaos. But it's not indiscriminate. It's it's not, well, let's see what happens if I do this. It is very purposeful.
1: Andrew was texting me last night, I think it'd be okay for sharing this. He wanted to know if I thought the song God's Gonna Cut You Down is blasphemous. And he sent a cover version of Johnny Cash's version, and I said, No, the only thing blasphemous about this is that you are listening to some trash version of not Johnny Cash. Yeah. But um, that the whole concept of God cutting you down can have multiple meanings. It does not have to be just you're telling people God's gonna cut you down. In wrath, God can cut you down. In mercy, God can cut you down with like, like there, there there are multiple ways that can be taken. He, he didn't hear that when he was listening to the song, but
0: kind of yeah, you know, the focus of your life from God's perspective is making you ready for the day of His coming. And I'll say this in the sermon today because Isaiah gets it in his prayer, it's really hard for us to look at bad things, objectively bad things, and think that they're necessary. Our minds just go to all the other ways we think this could have been accomplished. I can't believe you made it at all. (laughs) I'd still be asleep. (laughs) Uh, And I mean, I hate to spoil the sermon, but it's a long sermon anyway, so you'll probably be blacked out by this part. (laughs) What do you think was going through their heads when they were standing at the edge of the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army is coming behind them? Uh, seriously, put yourselves in their shoes. What do you think is going through their heads? This is how we die. This is how we die. You brought us out of Egypt for this. I mean, I, I. I think there are lots of times where it would, it is utterly. Rational. Apart from our knowledge of who God is, it would be utterly rational to look at those situations and say, this is not good. This is not necessary. And could, could you have even fathomed that God would part the sea and they'd walk through it? I mean, you, just, you don't have a category for that. <laughs> you know, this isn't. This just doesn't happen. And I, I, wonder, I wonder if because we tend not to see it as dramatically in the physical realm, because the work that God has to do to us is predominantly in the spiritual realm, I, I, I just wonder if we lose sight of how great of a miracle is needed how great of a series of miracles are needed to make us ready for the day of Christ's coming it was easy for Job to see I would like to be rid of these sores I would like to be rid of this dung pile I would like to have my stuff back I would like to have my respect back It was not so easy for Job to see. I would like to see God as he really is. I would like to have this arrogance in my heart put to death. And you say, well, I mean, how hard is it to put arrogance in your heart to death? It doesn't require all this. Really? (laughs) Invite you into my heart. it's It's a miracle that we move an inch toward Christ. And it's—I mean, I, <laughs> humility is good, and it's the starting place, and it's critical. God is God, and we're not. But not in—but that we cannot stop with the the negative view of because I mean, it's God. There's just nothing I can do about it. That's that's not going to get you to hope, inspire. Like that's not going to get you. To real submission. There's another word that can be good and bad, right? We have to just submit ourselves before God. In what condition of heart? Doesn't that make all the difference? There's the... What difference does it make? He's the boss. It's not going to do any good to fight against him anyway. Is that what God's looking for? Was that Christ? (laughs) Was Christ saying to the Father? Wasn't my plan. That's actually one of the great blasphemies of Jesus Christ Superstar. That is what Jesus says in Jesus Christ Superstar. Jesus is more sympathetic with Judas than with the Father in Jesus Christ Superstar. That They're just pawns in a game. And everybody's playing their part. Yeah, that can't. Yeah, you, you. O- only the strongest-willed of people can stay there for long. So they can start there. You, oh yes, you could definitely start there. You can stay there for a while, and the most stubborn, strongest-willed people theoretically could stay there for an entire human life. Is that the pawns and the game point. The the ones who are submitted to God without any. Hope, joy, love for him. Like, I do my duty because he's God and I'm not, and what difference does it make? I play the part I've got. And if you think about that, if you're in college and you think about that, or you're in college and you're a philosophy student, you'll wander away from the faith pretty quickly because, right, eat, drink, tomorrow we're dead. Like, that's an irrational worldview. I think there are plenty... I think there are people who will carry that worldview through their entire lives, and they will go to church their entire lives, and they will stand before and say... Lord, Lord, did we not? Blah, blah, blah. And he will say, I never knew you. I don't think that's just for false teachers. I think, well, I think some of the people who have that worldview are false teachers. But I, I think that's for people who think the external demonstration of religion has value apart from why are we doing this? Yeah, submission... I mean, even just the etymological study. (laughs) We're putting ourselves below what? His mission. We're subjecting our wills to his. Not my will, but thy will be done. Why? Because he's God. Okay? And? Because his will is good. Because he's better. Because I believe his promises. Because where else will we go? You have the words of life. I have tried plenty of times to put my mission above your mission. It wrecks everything. In a world that I cannot possibly imagine getting worse, and I put my mission above your mission, and it's somehow I made it worse. Because now I have so spiritual bankruptcy and not just a bunch of circumstantial pain in my life yeah you can't you can't get you got to go all the way through you can't stop at resignation you can't stop with a factual understanding that he's God and you're not that's not humility (laughs) It's something deeper than that you can't stop with mechanical acceptance I will do what you've told me to do um, so like two two trains of thoughts with this. The first one, uh, more on just like
1: the macro, perhaps apologetic level. You know, I can see someone saying like, okay, then you're telling me that you're accepting that the Holocaust was good. Yes. Exactly. No, I, and yeah, I know that's the case, but it's like that's always tough when maybe you're in a group setting. They're like, you you think the Holocaust was good? And then when we think about our own um, personal experiences. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just very. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was, I, I mentioned it in uh, a quip where I was thinking about something that, that, that happened like ten years ago, and it's still difficult to see how that was good, even though I can see like
0: the actual steps of how it,
1: how it was good practically. So to re to reunderline your point about the heart condition, even when you see the evidence of how it. Was
0: good. And the problem in an apologetic context, for the record, is. You shouldn't answer the question, except with a question. Because their problem is not that you could in any way label the Holocaust as good. So much deeper, their problems are ultimate problems. One, who gets to define good? Only they do. Okay. And two, is there anything anyone could do that they think deserves judgment? Are they able to look at anything bad that happens to a person Capital punishment. No, I'm against capital punishment. Right, so the person who you know, molests and murders your children should receive no pun- Oh, they should be punished. Okay, okay. So, so you, like, it's the ultimate question. Of No, you don't want to be in a group of people saying there can be an element of God's righteous judgment even in the Holocaust. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to be in a group of people saying that. But it's true and that group of people is so broken at an ultimate commitments level, you should never make the statement because you'd have to reason back 35 things they're wrong about to even have the category. Yeah. And the second one is
1: just a comment. Like, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a hard thing. Even when you see the evidence of... And we don't always see the evidence of how it was God's goodwill in this, in this life. But even when you see the evidence, the heart... Conditions. Right.
0: And I mean, remember, Job never does. God never tells Job what he told us in chapter 1 and 2. All Job knows is everything went away. God confronted him. He got his audience before God. He was vindicated before his friends, but humbled before God. And God blessed him.
1: <laughs> kind of goes back to like the... The stiff-necked people that I mean, even the Israelites just constantly have to be reminded. I mean, they see God work so up close, and then they so quickly forget. And
0: to me, it goes back to like how much of a miracle it takes that we do this at all. Like the constant, not one-time miracle of salvation, the constant series of miracles by which we are persevered in the faith. Because Israel, and we think if we had seen those things, surely I would have. In the faithful one, and then we live a while and we're like, The people who lived during the ministry of Jesus, He raised Lazarus from the dead. People, like, surely if I had seen that, I would be. No, no, do you, do you need Peter's examples? Do you need like what, what, what do you need to be sure that apart from God persevering us in the faith, doing that ongoing series of miracles in us? We can rationalize away anything. We really can. We, we, and it's back to that lack of humility. When I think about my rationalizations, they're about I know how the world should go. I'm going to put all of life in the world in my neat little boxes and categories. And when things are going well... I can be led into this delusion that that, there's some there there. And then when everything falls apart, your first response is not, wow, I've clearly wandered away from the truth of God and have invented my own worldview. And that's why my soul is crushed right now. It's, (laughs) ah, you ruined my life. Stop bringing bad things. Isaiah has this great line in the prayer today. Uh, and it's easy to misunderstand. But he's like, the, the, the uncareful reading of it is like, God, you did this to us. Our sin is all your fault. And uh, it's not what he's saying at all. Oh, Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? But see, what's really in that is Isaiah recognizes... The hardness of heart against God is the problem here. The lack of felt presence of God is the problem here. And so the solution is return for the sake of your servants. Return. Come back. come. Don't hide yourself from us. That experience is a little different than ours because in the Old Testament, they had no guarantee of the presence of God. God withdrew himself from his people for long periods of time in the Old Testament The entire silence between Malachi and John the Baptist. God withdraws his presence from his people in the Old Testament. That's a thing. And Isaiah is saying, hey, that's killing us. What it was actually doing was making them see life apart from God gets real bad real quick. And the only solution is God to come back. We don't have to deal with that. We feel like we deal with that. We feel like God's abandoned us. We feel like God is far off. God didn't go anywhere. Emmanuel's God with us. Word and spirit always with us. God hasn't gone anywhere. And so the problem is with me. The problem is with my... Something about my approach to God is making God feel far off. Normally we can examine ourselves... People always want to go right to the outlier case. So you're saying that's our fault. I'm saying most of the time it's your fault. I'll set aside the outlier that I'll talk about in a second. But honestly, most of the time you feel far from God, it's your fault. You're not in the word. You're not in prayer. You're like, you're not humble before God. You're grumbling about your circumstances. You're frustrated with the world as it is. You're whatever else. But not Always. Okay, so what about the time when you're doing everything right? All the spiritual disciplines are there, the eagerness for God. What about those times? Don't they exist? Yes, they exist. Fall before God in humility like Isaiah did and ask for his presence. Ask every day if you have to. Ask 10 times a day if you have to. You can't tell me that won't ultimately be good for you. But what we tend to do is that's when we ask for the presence of God the least. We interpret that feeling as a shunning from God, because that's what humans would do. Humans shun. And our response to that shun is, I didn't need you anyway. Whether that's the more arrogant-hearted type of, I don't need you anyway, or the more, um, I don't want to say humble because I don't want to compliment it, the more self-loathing heart that says, I don't deserve your presence, that's why I don't have it. Like, that's a crock, too. Confess your sin, he's faithful and just forgive your sins, clothe you of all unrighteousness. There, now we're on the same grounds. Now what? <laughs> right? So I, I think we can only get so far. Job's really helpful. But if Job teaches us anything, it's that we can only get so far with intellectual knowledge. I mean the friends, the counselors this was a big problem with them they had a lot of facts right but when their experience didn't jive with the facts <laughs> I have to twist the facts a little. Bit. <laughs> other questions? anything else about Job? and then we can talk more broadly uh, we've already touched
1: on this but I still don't like it um, it is so obvious to us that God sent the bad things to
0: Job. Like God, God did it. So how do people explain Job? People that don't believe God brings back like bad things. So they say Job's a special circumstance. Okay. So they, they say Job yeah. They say Job God could bring bad things into people's lives. He could do anything. He did it in Job for the sake of making a Bible story example. He did it with Jesus for the sake of saving people. But that's not how God normally works. God normally works by only bringing good, but by leaving you so much freedom and so many choices that you will get bad things because you will make bad choices. Which, man, I was thinking this morning in the shower about a friend of mine I've been praying for from from the Roman Catholic tradition. And the part I can't get over is like, what a heavy load. What a heavy load is a religion that tells you the bad things in your life are because you didn't do better. What a heavy load that tells you if you want things to improve, if it's up to be, it's up to me. What a crushing weight. I mean, I, I guess there's a time in my life that would have made me optimistic. Now it just feels like death. The idea
1: is it crushing if you redefine...
0: Heavy load bad? to good enough? <laughs> yeah. 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 So
1: I think that's what you do to cope. Is you just redefine what the load mm-hmm. is, and you say, oh, well, this is not, this is not that bad, because yeah. I can do and we talked
0: about that with, com, with judging, right? The only way we come out well in judging is if we change the standard or compare ourselves to other people. So I can either make the standard achievable by me, and then I feel pretty good about myself. The load's not so heavy. <laughs> Surprise, it's God wants all the things I do naturally. Or I can keep God's standard and then just compare myself to others. As long as I'm better than Noah. Like okay. no, I think that 's right, and that 's I mean again, why do we worship the way we worship? You need the reading of the law and worship every now and then because there may be some Sundays where you come in here and you think you 've kept it
1: so was like got
0: the third one is like. <laughs> the third one is a great commandment for that because we almost never think about the third commandment and so you think how hard could that one be to keep I haven't even thought about it this year <laughs> yeah <laughs> therein lies the problem <laughs> well, yeah I, I, I don't I, I do we've been down with Job in the pit And we've had our own various pits over the years. And I do think it's important that we acknowledge pits as pits. (laughs) I think it's important that we sit in silence with Job, um, recognizing the brokenness that is around us. But I don't think it's okay that we be resigned, that we act as though Christ isn't risen, that we act as though there are no tokens of God's redemptive work in this world, that everything's just bad and broken until we get there, that that hope is theologically meaningful but experientially pointless. I mean, we've joked with the, with the expression, it's the hope that kills you. Like, that can't actually be true. We can't let that be true. <laughs> the lack of hope is what kills you. False hope kills you. But hope is the... Hope is what... <laughs> is knowing... Hope is confident because the load isn't on me. It's on the God who is God. Hope is the confident expectation that God is going to do what he said he'll do. God's already given us the down payment on that in the resurrection. He's given us the down payment of that in the Holy Spirit. Every one of us is a token, is an evidence of God's grace. As I still think that's the best, uh, I think there's a hundred great, tombstone epitaphs, even though nobody writes them anymore. Um, a token of God's grace. That's what your life is. Your life should, when things are dark for people around you, they should be able to look at your life and say, God is gracious to his people. Look at the ongoing series of miracles that God continues to do, but out of his goodness. And there's more than just us that is that. But, but we're One. Everybody who believes is one. Everybody who's being sanctified is one. Everybody who's being made more like Christ is one.
1: Um, could you could you touch again on? I, we talked about it last week. Kind of the idea in the Old Testament. Obviously, they didn't have the the risen Christ. Um, and Calvin's theory, you know, they needed to live a lot longer. That one I was. You, you helped me after the sermon, but could you just explain kind of the difference of the Old Testament? saints and the new testament saints and how we have the holy spirit and so on and so forth
0: all believers in the in the christian sense what they're believing in is a promise all of us believed in the same thing that's why our faith is the same as abraham we believe in a promise prior to the resurrection they were believing in a promise that was yet to be fulfilled. The further back you go in the Old Testament, the less of that promise is even clear to them. For some people, Adam and Eve, the promise was as vague as Genesis 3, 15, 16. I'll put enmity between you and the serpent. Seed heel, head. Like, that's fake. (laughs) But they believed in that promise. Abraham, I'll make you the father of many nations. That's (laughs) fake. But he believed in that promise. Moses, a not my people will be my people. Starting to get a little more clear. Fake. The prophets. Now, Isaiah, we look back and we're like, why didn't you guys know about Jesus? Isaiah says right here. <laughs> it's like, but until you have Jesus, more details, but not super clear what this is going to look like. And then John the Baptist says, yeah, that's him. So I, John the Baptist is my favorite Old Testament prophet. because It's like, oh, that's the first message I can understand. That guy. That's him. The promise, Him. So we believe the same thing, the promise. But, but the promise was fulfilled. And so we get to look backwards. You can say, in a way, they had it easier because they got credit for believing a vaguer promise. But in a way, we have it easier because we have a historical record that says He is risen. He is risen. And then the Calvin quote was about their experience of the Holy Spirit. The thing I said a few minutes ago, that in the Old Testament, God could withdraw his presence from his people and things would just go dark. He could take the temple away from them and they couldn't even worship that. like They had this very on-again, off-again experience of the presence of God because they didn't keep the promise. (laughs) Um, And God would withdraw himself from them for a purpose. Um, So Hebrews 1 says, in those times, God spoke in many and diverse ways. But it also, sometimes God didn't speak. Sometimes the presence of God was objectively not with them. And so this idea that without the daily indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you need more time to believe the promise. (laughs) You need more experiences of seeing God work those miracles, and be faithful to believe the promise. Whereas in the New Testament, now, post-Pentecost, we have the Holy Spirit, and there is never a moment where we can say God is not with us. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, remember, Calvin's is a theory, right? Calvin's is just speculating. Why did the patriarchs live so long? Well, they needed more time because they didn't have the Holy Spirit. It was
1: their diet? They
0: had such a pure diet. <laughs> Ezekiel bread.
1: <laughs>
0: I don't think so because I think we can be. We we don't have to wonder what God's end state for us is. His end state for us is Christ-likeness. And if we are in him, we will be with him when we are ready. And if he decided that you were going to live to 130, uh, you would be ready at 130 and not at 129. Now, it is also the case that we have seen great stalwarts of the faith have mental decay and dementia and say all sorts of horrible things late in life Uh, that's a complicated thing to unpack but I don't think I go back to teaching on like the unforgivable sin it's not something you say it's a condition of the heart the sin that can't be forgiven there's no magic words there when you're a kid you always worry like
1: but there's no magic
0: words there the unforgivable sin is a condition of the heart it's it's a, it's an actual belief it's a belief that is as firmly held as our faith in christ because somebody's mind is in decay and neurons are firing and words are coming out of their mouths does not mean that that is a sincerely held conviction of the heart it's the best i got